Well, thanks, Jeff. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Good, good to see you. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Zach, one of the pastors here. Hope that you are doing well. If you've got a Bible, we are going to be in 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 3. 1, 2, 3, as we do 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 3. What John is doing in 1 John is he is writing a letter, and he's writing this letter to the church to encourage two things. One, for Christians to remain faithful, and two, to warn against false teachers. He's writing at a time where a lot of people had left the church, some wolves, if you will, some false teachers had uh, infiltrated the church. And so he's going to write this letter encouraging the church to remain faithful and also helping give us some marks of true versus false Christians of sheep versus wolves in sheep's clothing. Now, uh, I have two kids, a four-year-old and a two-year-old, and I love getting to rock them to bed. And by rock them to bed, I mean I rock them and I put them down in bed and they flop around for an hour. They don't actually fall asleep because I'm talking to them and we're singing songs and these kind of things. And my daughter, Isla, she's two, she loves books with animals in them. So we will sit down and we will go through the animals and she's like, another book? And I go get another book. And we just do that for what feels like six hours. And as we're doing that, I'm asking her, what sound do these animals make, okay? And sometimes she crushes it. I'm like, Isla, what sound does a cow make? Moo, and she gets really excited. I'm like, you got it, babe, it's, 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 it's moo. But then if she doesn't know what sound the animal makes, she will do one of two things. She will either think that the animal makes the sound of its name, right? So what does a sheep say? Sheep. No, it does not say sheep. As if, uh, you know, a sheep in some other language would just speak a totally different language. Or what does a fish say? Fish. It doesn't do that. Or she will default to a tremendously big scary growl, no matter what the animal is. It can be, what, uh, what sound does a bunny rabbit make? Rawr. And she'll put up her hands and roar. And I'm like, no. No, she's very feisty. She's very fiery as a little girl. And so she's learning the difference between what sound the animals make. Now, let me tell you why this is relevant for 1 John. What 1 John is going to do is he's going to help you distinguish a sheep, a Christian, from a wolf in sheep's clothing, okay? That's someone who is a false teacher, someone who's claiming to be a Christian who is not. Now, if I were to put before you a sheep and a wolf in sheep's clothing, how would you know which is which? They look exactly the same, okay? And what John will do is he will give us three tests of how we can know. The first thing that you can do is you can ask both of them to speak, okay? A sheep will make a a sheep sound. I'm not gonna do it. I know you guys want me to, but I'm not gonna do it. And a wolf will howl, okay? That's the first test that John gives us is doctrine, okay? If someone claims to be a sheep, claims to be a Christian, but they're teaching false doctrine, they're teaching doctrine that the Christian church has not held for 2,000 years, that is a mark of them being a wolf, okay? The second test that he gives us is a social test. How do you know the difference between a sheep and a wolf in sheep's clothing? You see whether or not they love other sheep. You see, a real sheep loves other sheep. He grazes with the sheep, he hangs out with the sheep, but a wolf doesn't love the sheep. He loves stalking the sheep, He loves abusing the sheep. He loves trying to eat the sheep, but he doesn't love the sheep. That's the second test that John will give us is a social test. Are you a Christian? There's a doctrinal test. There's a social test. And then the one he's going to deal with today is a moral test. If you have a sheep and you have a wolf in sheep's clothing, if you simply watch them long enough, they will reveal what they really are. When nobody's looking, the wolf in sheep's clothing will eat meat. He will stalk the sheep. 
he will try to hurt one of them. Anybody can fake it for a number of years, but eventually over time, you start to see wolf-like behavior. And so that's what John is going to give us today. He's gonna give us some uh, tips on what it looks like to really be a Christian versus someone who is a false Christian or a wolf. So with that in mind, let me pray, and then we will get into verse three, and we'll walk through this line by line. Let's pray. Father, we come before you through the Son and by the Spirit, and we confess that you are unlike us, that you are eternal, that you are omnipresent, that you are all-knowing, that you uh, are not restricted by time and space. You don't have a body. You are everywhere. We confess that you are great. And so would you help us? Would you help us love you? Would you help us understand your word? We confess that your word is clear. It has been written to, quote, make wise the simple, but we confess that we are not clear. We come to the text with foggy glasses that are fogged up because of sin and presuppositions and all kinds of things. And so would you help us? We love you. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen. Now let's look at verse three. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Okay, a few things I want you to see here in verse three. First of all, I think the him here is God the Father. The reason I think that is because later on in the text, it will specifically switch to talk about the son. It will switch to talk about Jesus. But I want you to see the, something in the first part of verse three. Look at what it says. The first part of verse three says, quote, we can know that we have come to know him. Now, let me tell you why this is profound. The Bible just said that you and I can have an assurance of salvation. We can know that we're forgiven. We can know that we are not going to hell. We can know that God loves us. If I come up to you and ask you if you are going to go to heaven, you should not say, I hope so. What the Bible is doing is it is saying that we can have an assurance of salvation and we can have it now. Think about the peace that that brings. When you're forgiven by Christ forever and always for all your sins, past, present, and future, you don't have to always be living in this fear of maybe I'll show up on judgment day and not know how the verdict is going to go, that you can have an assurance of God's love, forgiveness, grace, all of these things. And this isn't the only place in the Bible that teaches this. Let me show you a few other passages. 1 John 5.13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. That's part of John's purpose, that they might rest in God's grace. 1 John 3, 14, we know that we have passed out of death, that's sin and condemnation, into life because we love the brothers. There's that social test. We love other sheep. John 5, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, okay, notice he's saying this is something with certainty, truly, truly, amen, amen, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Past tense. It's done, all right? You've already moved from death to life. And not only that, but God preserves your salvation. Can, if salvation is up to you and me to keep, we will certainly lose it. Because what does God demand? He demands perfection. How many sins would I have to commit to lose my salvation? Just one. But thankfully, God is the one who preserves our salvation, not us. Philippians 1.6 And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him. Notice what's required for salvation. Hearing the gospel and believing in him, what happened when that happened? We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. When you repent and trust in Christ, God puts a down payment on that house and he never stops completing the payments on that house. He, he purchases every house that he puts a down payment on, if you wanna say it that way, okay? 
So listen, the Bible teaches here that you can have assurance of salvation. You can know you're loved, know you're forgiven. This is unique to Protestantism, okay? In Roman Catholicism, it's actually considered a sin to have assurance of salvation. It's considered the sin of presumption. I would say that that's not a sin of presumption. I would say the greater sin is when you're calling God a liar because he has said, if you trust in Christ, he will not leave you or forsake you, okay? So here's what you need to know. Yes, you can have an assurance of salvation, but let me speak to those of you who that stresses you out. I have wrestled with most of my adult life with having an assurance of salvation. So if you're thinking, okay, Zach, I do love Jesus and I have trusted in him, but a lot of days I'm not sure. I still doubt whether or not I'm a Christian. I still doubt whether or not God's gonna save me. I still doubt these things. Here's what you need to know. Yes, you can have an assurance of salvation. That doesn't mean that if you don't have that assurance, that you're lost, okay? It doesn't mean, just because you should have an assurance of salvation, that's a gift from God, but just because you don't have that does not mean that you are not a Christian. Let me say it this way. If you have B-positive blood and you don't know about that, does your blood type change? It just switches to A negative or to O or anything like that? No, you don't have to know these things for them to still be true. And so you need to understand this. Faith is not certainty. God does not demand that you have Cartesian certainty when it comes to your faith. One of my favorite passages in the New Testament, there's this guy that goes up to Jesus and he wants Jesus to heal his kid. And he says, "Uh, will you heal my kid? And Jesus says, all things are possible to him who has faith. And the guy says, I believe help my unbelief. Now, here's why I love that. He's saying, I have faith, but only kind of and not really because I also think you might not do it. And guess what happens? Jesus heals his kid. God is not restrained because of your own lack of faith. Lost people have 0% faith. If you have anywhere between 1% and 100%, that's evidence of regeneration. That's evidence of being a Christian. God does not demand that you have the entire field. He just demands that you have a mustard seed a mustard seed. So hear me. Yes, you can have an assurance of salvation as a Christian, but just because you don't, it doesn't mean that you don't really love Christ or that he doesn't really love you. That would be putting your faith in faith, how hard you believe, instead of in Christ, okay? God's love for you is not restricted by your love for him, okay? Let me read you a quote from my boy John Calvin on assurance of faith. He says this, when we stress that faith ought to be certain and secure, We do not have in mind a certainty without doubt or a security without any anxiety. Rather, we affirm that believers have a perpetual struggle with their own lack of faith and are far from possessing a peaceful conscience never interrupted by any disturbance. On the other hand, we want to deny that they may fall out of or depart from their confidence in the divine mercy, no matter how much they may be troubled." Here's the encouragement that he's giving. When we say you should have an assurance of salvation, that doesn't mean you can't doubt it or you never have struggles or you never have problems. What he's saying is faith is knowing that God will be faithful to you when you are not faithful to God. As we've said many times in here, a little bit of faith in a strong Christ still gets you the strong Christ, okay? Still gets you the strong Christ. Now look again at verse three. It says this, and by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments, okay? Now, look at me. It's really important that you get the tense of this right, okay? Where it says that we've come to know him, it's the Greek word egnokamen, and notice that it's in the past. It's in a perfect tense. It's in something that's already completed. Here's what I'm saying. This text is not saying, if you follow his commands, then God will save you. It's saying, if you've already come to know him, 
then you follow his commands. Do you see the difference? This is, you have to get this difference. This will destroy you if you don't get the difference. Christianity is not, I do good things and then God loves me. Christianity is God loves me and therefore I do these good things. God's salvation, his justification is a free gift. It's accepted through faith alone, in Christ alone. And once God has adopted you, he's, tra- he's uh, accepted you, you've been justified. As a result of that, you walk in righteousness. You can't get them mixed. It's not if I do these good things, then maybe I'll know God. It's I've already come to know him by faith alone, and therefore he has changed my life so that I walk in this particular way. So I'll show you what the text is saying and is not saying. We're going to put up two little uh, things that it could mean here. The text is not saying if we keep his commandments, this makes us know him. Okay? Notice the tenses of these commands. What the text is saying is this. If we keep his commandments, it's because we have already come to know him in the past. You see the difference? Okay, it's very important that you get the difference. The Bible is not Pelagian. It is not workspace. It is not you earning your way to heaven. It is God giving you a gift that you cannot earn because God demands perfection and we can't reach perfection. So Christ, the God man, does it on our behalf so that we might be saved. And when he saves us, he also transforms us. So in summary, it looks like this. By continuing to live in obedience, we can know now that we have already been saved. That's what verse three is saying, okay? That's what verse three is saying. Listen, this is important. Your actions are the evidence, but not the grounds, the basis, or the cause of your salvation. Your actions are the evidence, not the basis, not the grounds, or the cause of your justification. Everybody get that, okay? Uh, When I was in uh, high school, I uh, worked a bunch of odd jobs. Most of them were outside. So I mowed lawns, which was awful because I'm highly allergic to grass. And so I'm just walking around in people's yards like sneezing. They're looking at at me out the window. I uh, installed fire alarm systems. One of the worst jobs I had is I worked in insulation in the summer in Texas. And as I was laying up in this attic, itchy, it's 120 degrees and I'm being attacked by spiders, I thought to myself, I should go to college. I want to do something different than this, right? So I filled out an application originally for a job in an air-conditioned environment, and one of the questions on the application was, are you bilingual? Do you speak Spanish? And I thought to myself, you know what? I took a year of Spanish in high school, so I'm going to go ahead and check yes on this. So I checked that. Now, I thought about that later, and I thankfully never got called in for a job interview, because how would you know that I don't speak Spanish? You just simply try to talk to me in Spanish. I would have sat down for that job interview and they would have said something to me in Spanish and I would have been like, <laughs> tacos. I don't know. I have no idea. My, my, my actions there show that I was lying. They show that I didn't really speak Spanish. This text is not saying that you somehow merit God's favor by following his commands. It's saying that that is the evidence of whether or not you've come to know God. Okay? Whether or not you've come to know God. Is this text teaching a works-based view of salvation? Let me answer in Spanish, no. Okay? Let's transition to verse 4. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Now, this text has a very simple meaning. It's simply this. Your actions, not your words, show whether or not you're really a Christian. Okay? A lot of people say that they speak Jesus, but then when you ask them about that, they don't. It is saying that your actions, not your words, show whether or not you're a Christian. I can claim all kinds of things to you that are not true, so I'll give you a few things. If I come up to you and I say to you, I'm an excellent ice skater, how do you know whether or not that's true? 
You just watch me ice skate, baby, right? I look like, well, I look like I've got like nine layers of clothes and I'm just kind of shuffling, right? I look like a baby deer learning how to walk. I don't know how to do it. I can say to you that I know how to ice skate, but my actions show otherwise. Or because I'm a guy, I like to pretend that I know how to fix cars, right? Because you're supposed to as a guy. So anytime I have to take my car into the mechanic, I act like I already know what I'm doing. I'm like, well, yeah, I think the flux capacitor's broken. They're like, that's not a thing. Well, I uh, took a bunch of oil and poured it on the steering wheel. I didn't know if that would do anything. And they're like, well, you just, you have a flat tire. I'm like, oh yeah, tires, they're round, we put air in them. You and me are on the same page. We're both mechanics. That's how I feel. I can say that I know about cars, but my actions show very quickly that's not the case. Or singing. My entire life, I've wanted to be able to sing, okay? And no matter how hard I try, it is terrible. I cannot get my voice to match the voice on the radio. So I can come up and I can tell you I'm a good singer, but when you hear me sing, it sounds like I'm getting kidnapped by Al-Qaeda. I mean, there's screaming and it's terrifying and it's just, it's awful, right? Your actions show what's true, not your words. That's simply what he's saying in this text, okay? Now look again at verse four when it says, but does not keep his commandments. What do we mean by commandments there? Does that mean like the 10 commandments? Does that mean the Old Testament Jewish Mosaic law? Does that mean Jesus's commandments like the Sermon on the Mount? Does that mean uh, the command to love one another? What kind of commandments is it talking about? Well, I actually think that John is trying to leave it intentionally ambiguous. He's not trying to say follow these commands, but, but not these commands. He's trying to say part of the evidence of whether or not you're a sheep opposed to a wolf in sheep's clothing is whether or not you obey Jesus, whether or not you follow God, whether or not you follow his commands. Now, I want to show you a text that freaks out a lot of people, and I want to explain it, but I want to show it to you because it's a very difficult text. Matthew 7, 21 through 23 says this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Notice, saying that Jesus is Lord with your mouth, anyone can do. Saying Jesus is Lord with your heart is the work of regeneration and the work of the Spirit. There are people who can confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, but have not been transformed. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. Notice they're using the term Lord, even though they're not obeying him. Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Let this throw a wrench in your theology real quick. This text just said that there are lost people who don't have the spirit who can prophesy, cast out demons, and do miracles. The mark of you being a Christian is not your cool charismatic powers. It's not these miraculous things that God's doing in your life with these kind of things. Lost people can have those. Look at the last phrase here. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of what? Lawlessness. It is your actions that show, don't earn your salvation, but show whether or not God has already given it to you by faith, okay? Now, the reason a lot of people freak out about this text is they think that one day I'll stand before God in judgment and he'll just say, I never knew you. And you're like, but Jesus, I loved you. That's not who this text is talking about, okay? If you're someone who loves Christ, you are loved by Christ and his love comes first. And so you don't need to freak out about this. This is not talking about people. He doesn't say, depart from me, those who I knew for a while, and then you messed up a bunch. And so then I decided not to know you. Notice it says that he never knew them. They were never Christians. They're not Christians who struggle with sin. They're those who don't know Christ as evidenced by their actions, okay? Now look again at the text. It doesn't just say that that person lies. 
it makes a stronger identity claim that that person is a liar. Do you see the difference? He's talking about identity here. Christians, Christian is one identity. The alternate identity is someone who is a liar. It's not merely that they're a Christian and who tells lies. Can a Christian tell lies? Sure, we do it all the time. Let me give you a few. Boy bands are awesome. The world is flat. Spanking your kids is mean. Bowling is cool. Bill Nye is a real scientist. Most NASCAR fans have PhDs. The WNBA is fun to watch. You see, I can make all kinds of lies, even though I'm a Christian, okay? But that's not my identity. What this text is talking about, someone who doesn't just lie, someone who is a liar. That is their identity. They do not Christ. They're, 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 they're not a saint who sins, which is what Christians are. They are a sinner who sins. They, are, and they have this identity of being a liar. Now, look at the end of the verse. What does it mean to say that the truth is not in him? What does it mean to say that the truth is not in him? Let me give you something that will be really helpful throughout 1 John, okay? The words truth, light, word, and command are used interchangeably throughout 1 John, okay? The words truth, light, word, and command are used interchangeably in 1 John. So Jesus is the light, but he's also the word, and to follow him is to follow his command, et cetera, et cetera. These terms are used interchangeably. What the text is saying is that if this truth is not in you, he's saying you're not a Christian. That's what it means. God's love is not in you. Christ is not in you. The truth is not in you. If you're a liar, what's in you is lie, right? What's in you is falsehood. So let me tell you the two people that I think most need to hear this verse. And by the way, these verses sound very condemning. So there will be grace at the end of this sermon. So hang on, we'll do law first, and then we'll do gospel. But uh, the people I think that most need to hear this text are two kinds of people. Here's the first one. Those of you who've been in church a long time, those of you who've been in church a long time, sometimes have been inoculated to the gospel where you get just enough of it to not get the real thing. And if that's you, this text would warn you to wake up. I don't care if you have prayed a prayer. I don't care if you've been baptized. I don't care if you've walked an aisle at a Billy Graham crusade. What I want to know is, has the Spirit changed your life? If I sit down with you and you say you're a Christian, I say, how do you know? You should be able to give me tangible evidence of how the Spirit changed your life. I love Christ. I hate my sin. I used to be like this, and I'm not like this anymore. I love other Christians. God's word rings true to my heart, et cetera, et cetera. You see, I think it's actually harder to be a, to be a pastor in the South, and here's why. You ask Christians in any other part of the world what it's like, and they'll just tell you. It's very easy to know who's a Christian and who's not. You go to Europe, you go to New York, you go to Portland or Seattle or something like that, it is very clear. These people are Christians, and all these other people are not, and they will tell you that they are not. The problem in the South is that there's not very many Christians, but everybody thinks that they are, right? This is just something you do. This is, this is the South, so you go to church, and then you go home and eat chicken, and you listen to country music. This is just part of what you do in the South. And so this text will warn you and say, have you been transformed by Christ? Is there something you're putting your hope in other than Jesus alone? If you've got Jesus as a boat and you've got another boat, which is your righteousness, your good deeds, whatever it is, and those boats start drifting apart, you have to put all your weight on one. Which one will you choose? Have you been transformed? Now, the second kind of person that needs to hear the warning of this text are those that are struggling with some type of sin but instead of continuing to fight it, have just said, forget it. I'm going to give myself over to this sin. I'm not going to fight it anymore, okay? We as Christians will all struggle with sin. You will struggle with sin the rest of your life. We do not believe in perfection this side of eternity. But there are some, probably in this room, 
who have some particular sin they struggle with and they've just said, forget it, I'm just gonna do it. I can't resist it, it's too hard, I love my sin too much, I don't know what to do, okay? Now hear me if that's you. God is not asking you to clean yourself up before you come to Christ. It is not the well who need a physician, but the sick. You just come to Jesus and he does the Jesus stuff. You don't have to do the Jesus stuff. You're not Jesus, okay? You just come to him. We had a guy named Ryan who uh, got saved here a few months ago and we got to baptize. And when I was sitting with him uh, getting coffee, we had a great conversation. Over coffee, he said, I'm not a Christian. And I said, tell me about that. And he said, well, my understanding is that a Christian is someone who loves Jesus more than anything else. And I said, you know, that's a pretty good definition of a Christian. And he goes, well, I can't be a Christian then because I don't feel that way about Jesus. I love my sin more than Jesus. I loved how honest that conversation was. What blew his mind was when we were able to say, whoa, 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 whoa. Jesus is not asking you to love him more than your sin before you come to him. He's asking you to come to him warts and all. He's asking you to come to him broken, not loving God, loving your sin. And his grace is what transforms you. It's not you clean yourself up and go to Jesus. You go to Jesus and he does the stuff. So if you're in here struggling with some type of sin that you just feel like you just cannot get over. You, you don't even want to fight it. You just know you're going to give into it. One, that is a lie. And two, you don't have to white knuckle your way out of that. You don't have to pull yourself up by your moral bootstraps. You come and you get on your face and you ask Jesus to move and watch what happens in your life. Watch what happens in your life. Verse 5a. But whoever keeps his word, this is a contrast to those who are liars and don't keep his word, but whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected, okay? The goal for, of God's love towards you is to grow you in your love for God and love for others, which is evidenced by obedience, okay? So, so let me explain how this works. You have a sinner, and a sinner doesn't love God, okay? God sets his love on us first, okay? How do I know that? The Bible says that we love God because, quote, he first loved us, and why we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is one of the reasons I'm a Calvinist, Everyone agrees that God chooses you and you choose God. The question is, which one comes first? Which is the cause and which is the effect? And I would say God is the cause. God chooses you first. How do I know that? Because the Bible says we love him because he, quote, first loved us. God does the stuff, okay? So I'm a sinner and I hate God and I hate other people. And when Christ transforms me, all of a sudden now, God loves me first and that causes me to love God back and to then love others. The greatest command is to love God. The second greatest command is to love others. Once that vertical relationship is healed, there's healing in the horizontal relationship. So I've racked my brain trying to figure out what it means to say the love of God is perfected. And I think that John is trying to say that part of God's goal and purpose in loving you is that you would love him, that you would love others, that it would overflow into these evidences of walking in righteousness. New Testament scholar Karen Job says this, God in Christ has loved us by redeeming us from sin. And that love has a transformative goal in the life of the believer, that they should love God, both father, the Father and the Son, which is expressed by love for others, okay? By love for others. Now look at verses 5b. That just means the second half of uh, verse 5. 5b through 6, it says this. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Verse five, when it says, by this, you might know him, that this kind of looks back to what the text just said. And it also kind of looks forward into talking about how Jesus walks. So here's my kind of interpretation to make this text a little bit clearer. By this obedience, we know that we are in him. 
The one who says he abides in God ought himself to live righteously just as Jesus did in his earthly ministry. Okay, now let me explain what this text is and is not saying. You need to understand that before Christ is our example, he is our savior, amen? There are whole streams of theology that teach that why the, the primary reason Jesus came was just to give us an example, to show us how we should love the poor, to show us how we should be nice, despite the fact that Jesus is often very mean, to show us how we should uh, love one another, to show us how we should do all these other things. Here's the problem with that kind of theology. You and I can't do it because we're tainted with sin. We are born with sin. We are born broken and we are born sinful. We are not born neutral. We are not born good. We are born sinful. And so we cannot follow Jesus' example. So any theology that would teach that Jesus came merely as an example or even primarily as an example, is not good theology. Jesus came primarily not to show you how to be saved, but to save you. He did all those things on your behalf. He was loving to others because you and I are not. He was righteous in doctrine because sometimes you and I are not. He did all the stuff that we're supposed to do and don't because we're broken and sinful. He's like us in all ways, yet without sin. He's not born with original sin like we are, okay? And so you need to understand, yes, Jesus is our example, but you don't need to worry about that till he's your savior. He's your savior first, and he's your example second. But it is true that the Bible teaches that Jesus is to be our example. Let me give you a few passages, including this one. 1 Peter 2, 21. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Every time I see like a TBN, Word of Faith, Prosperity Gospel preacher, the text just said, if you love Jesus, you're going to suffer. That's his promise. You want something that you can name it and claim it? Suffering. There you go. 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. Be imitators of me, says Paul, as I am of Christ. Do you see the, the little syllogism there? If A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. If I'm supposed to follow Paul and Paul's following Christ, then I'm supposed to follow Christ. That's the idea. John 13, 15, for I have given you an example, this is Jesus speaking, that you also should do just as I have done to you, okay? So this text is saying those who know Christ walk like Christ. Now, that's the meaning of the text. That's what these three verses means. I've preached, now let me pastor a little bit, okay? I personally hate having to study passages like this. Do you know why? Because they feel, if you, if you take them out of context, if you take them out of the context of the rest of the Bible, they feel overwhelmingly condemning. This text just said, if you don't walk like Jesus, you're not a Christian. That's a problem for me because I don't walk like Jesus, oh, I don't know, every day, right? This text just said, if you really love God, that you will obey him. Well, what about all the times when I don't obey him? You see, if you read texts like this through a works-based mentality, it makes you want to slit your wrists. God has given you a perfect standard. Be perfect as your heavenly father's perfect. How are we doing on that? Anybody just crushing that? Anybody not need Jesus's blood, not need the cross, not need to take communion, none of those things? You don't, you've got that? You've been perfect? Okay, then we've all failed every day at this command. God's command is not do your best, it's be perfect, which we can't do, which is why we need Christ. So let me encourage you on how to understand these passages. My hope is not that you would say, you know what, Zach? I'm not walking like Jesus walked, so I'm gonna go home and just do better. That is self-salvation, and God hates it. It is legalism. It's what the Pharisees do. Jesus condemns that far more than he condemns the harlot that cries at his feet. And so let me give you two thoughts on how to actually grow in holiness and grow in sanctification without this works-based righteousness, okay? The first thing I want to say is this. 
the solution never involves you trying harder. The solution never involves you doing better. Don't try to walk like Jesus walked. Just focus on Jesus and he will change your walk. Let me say that again. Don't try to walk like Jesus walked. That way it just leads to despair because you can't do it. Instead, focus on Jesus and he will transform the way you walk. He does the stuff. Let me show you some passages. Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27. Notice the flow of this. Notice that we don't do good and then God saves us. God saves us and then we do good. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Flesh there doesn't mean, by the way, sinful flesh, like the way Paul uses it. It just means that you're given a real heart, a soft heart is the idea. And I will put my spirit within you. Now notice that's first and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. Do you see the flow? If you are not walking like Christ walked, the solution is not to try harder. It's to go to God to receive the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit, to transform your life, and God causes you to obey his statutes. You don't do it on your own, okay? God does all the stuff. Jeremiah 31, 33 through 34. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. It's not that you have these tablets of stone that you try to follow. Paul says that the law was given to increase sin. We think that rules decrease sin. The Bible says the opposite. Rather, this text is saying you can't follow those stone tablets. God has to write his laws on your heart, and he does so through regeneration. And God's primary command to you is this, 1 John 3, 23. And this is his commandment, okay? So we want to follow God's commands. What's the main thing he's wanting? That we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. So the first thing I want you to see is this. Don't try to walk like Jesus walked. Just focus on Jesus and he will transform your walk, okay? It's like, I don't know if you've ever been mowing. I mow a lot because I have a backyard and I have kids and I don't want them like to get stickers and stuff and so I mow. If you try to just look down at the mower, you get all off and your lines look weird and your neighbors make fun of you. But if you pick this fixed point in the future, or the future, ahead of you, which is also kind of in the future because time and space go together, but you know what I mean. Anyway, so you're focused on this, you know, fence post or whatever and you stare at that, it causes you to walk in a straight line. That's what the gospel does. When you're trying to do better, your eyes are off Jesus. And when you're looking at Jesus, he is the one causing you to go in the straight line. Now, here's the second thing. If you get nothing else from my sermon, forget everything else I just said. Listen to what I'm about to say, okay? You need to hear this next point. Grace produces holiness. Legalism produces sin. Grace, this is kind of controversial, but this is absolutely true biblically. Grace produces holiness, legalism is actually what produces sin. Legalism produces licentiousness. What is licentiousness? It's just where you're living wickedly. You hear the word license, like license to do whatever you want. Grace produces holiness. Legalism produces uh, licentiousness. Let me give you an example. Now listen to this example. Imagine that you're watching a wedding, okay? And in the middle of the ceremony, the groom takes his hands and he holds the bride's face And he looks her right in the eye and says to her, no matter what you do, I will not leave you. I don't care if you cheat on me. I don't care if you're a terrible wife. I don't care if you don't submit to me. I don't care if we fight all the time. No matter what you do, I will not divorce you. 
Does that bride then say, great, I can't wait to cheat? No. Listen, this is important. Pay attention to what I'm saying. She is so overwhelmed by his grace and unconditional love, it actually makes her a better wife. It actually makes her less likely to cheat. It actually makes her more kind or whatever it might be. Grace produces holiness. Now, let's switch the analogy. Let's say in the middle of the wedding, the groom takes the bride by the face and looks her in the eye and he says this, I will not leave you unless you're not a very good wife or you displease me or you cheat on me or you don't keep you up your end of the bargain. She's been given law there. She's been given rules. Does that make her more likely to be a good wife? No, because she's not secure in her husband's love. She's thinking, well, wait a second. If his love for me is conditional, it's based on whether or not I can be a good wife, I might as well just throw in the towel now. I can never go up to that standard. Do you see what I'm saying? You need to know that when you become a Christian, Christ grabs you by the face and looks you in the eye and says, no matter what you do, I will not divorce you. And the more you focus on that, the more you'll actually walk in holiness. The more you think that Jesus is just giving you more rules, that the more you'll actually fall into sin. Licentiousness is just the logical outgrowth of legalism, always, always. Grace leads to holiness. Love is a much better motivator than fear. Love is a much better motivator than fear. Let me end by reading a little quote from a blog that we're working on here. It's not available yet, but we're working on it. It says this, the irony is that grace is not what produces licentiousness. It is actually legalism that produces licentiousness. When someone falls short of the rules, they will eventually fall into despair, feel hated by God, throw in the towel, and just start living wickedly. Legalism causes one to look inward and away from Christ, just like licentiousness causes one to look inward and away from Christ. At the end of the day, licentiousness is just the logical outcome of legalism. Okay? When you read this text in 1 John, if you just try harder, you'll just fail more. God is not wanting you to crush it in your own strength. He's wanting you to know that you can't, and so you have to just rely on Jesus. You don't get to be the hero of your Christianity. Your Christianity already has a hero, and it's Christ. So my question is for you, if you're not walking where Christ is, stop trying harder and ask him to help you. If you're not a Christian, maybe you're someone who thinks you're a Christian, you've been in church a long time, but you have not been transformed by Christ. You're relying on Christ plus your own righteousness, your whatever. I would encourage you to do the same thing, to fall on your face and ask Jesus to save you. Ask Jesus to redeem you. Call him Lord, call him Savior. Cry out to him. He's better. He's better. Let's pray as those helping serve communion come forward to pass out the elements. Almighty God, we thank you for your mercy and for your grace. We confess that uh, the church is supposed to be the bride of Christ, and yet we are a bride who have cheated on you every time we sin. We thank you that you have been faithful to us, Jesus. We thank you that you've been faithful to your bride, though we have been unfaithful. We thank you that you are a God that makes unilateral covenants, that you make covenants with us that are not dependent upon our uh, success in those things. I ask now that as we pass out the elements for communion and remember uh, your sacrifice, that you would, uh, you would encourage our hearts. We love you and thank you, Christ. It's for your name that we pray. Amen.